Our Three Cents is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, please go to greenlitpodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the very finest video games. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined, as always, by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Sack full of amiibo. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. I must finish this quickly. Come on, fools. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 favourite video games. Yes, we are. Announcement! Announcement! Good morrow. Before we crack on with the episode, we just wanted to issue you your weekly allowance of two reminders about our other platforms. Firstly, we have a YouTube channel, which we are continuing to stock with cracking video content. So please check that out and subscribe. Also, we have a Patreon page where you can pledge a few spare coins to get a whole host of amazing perks. So if you're enjoying what we're doing, then please head over to patreon.com forward slash our three cents and see what you can get. Woo. So, this week we have our number 33s. 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 That's two thirds of the list. Done. Gone. Yeah. Vanquished. Tied up in a bow. Put in a sack. <laughs> but before we do that, it's time to return to the quiz where, I mean, it's just so tense. It's so tense. We have 34 points to Chris and 32 points to Minty. I'm going to make it 33 points to me today. We'll see. In what year? Was the Sony PlayStation first released? 95. Uh, 93. Neither of you are correct. Yeah. I'm going to roll this point over to next week. <sighs> what was the What was the year? The correct answer was, I mean, together you were pretty much correct. It was 94. 1994. Oh, uh, fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we can't really split the difference on that one, can we? <laughs> no, exactly. So, unfortunately, neither of you are correct. So, yes, that point will roll over to next week's quiz question which will be worth a whopping two points two points double figures (laughs) yeah (laughs) so what have we been playing this week minty what have you been playing this week nothing really i played a couple of levels of doom 64 but that was it oh dear i don't know what i've been doing with my week how is doom 64 oh it's great fun like i said before it's just it's it's doom slowed down a little so i'm not awful at it yeah i've been playing the isle of armor on oh. it, it, the, the pokemon expansion how are you finding it, it uh, well i finished the main story well, i guess the story yep. bit of it that was over very quickly i don't like the martial art bear no it doesn't feel it's meant to be a, a legendary but it's really not is it it's like no i think it's i i, I don't like the way it looks part of the story is uh, you have to build up its friendship level so i was like okay well obviously like the easiest way to do that is to use berries so i you know stuffed it full of berries uh, but then i realized that um there were some fun little poignant moments that you could enjoy where you go and do some sightseeing on the island and you get little cutscenes, which i assume endeared you towards uh, this little bear but i only went to one and it was like well your friendship is maxed out now so you can head back to the dojo so I think I cheated myself out of some cherished memories where I would start to care more about that bear. Oh. Oh. Mm. I have that lined up for me to do next, the uh, the Isle of Armour DLC, for I have, as always, been totally consumed with Xenoblade Chronicles, Definitive Edition. You're almost there now. I finished it. Oh. I finished the game, and the ending is absolutely outstanding oh uh, (laughs) my goodness my flipping goodness is it worth 
playing the game to the end. <laughs> my goodness, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, it, it was just, yeah, fantastic. I, w- I won't say any more just because I don't want to give any spoilers to yeah. to, well, to anyone listening, but also to you two who haven't, haven't finished the game. I've also played and finished the extra content that comes with the definitive edition called the extra story called Future Connected, ah. which was nice, but... I mean, not not really necessary. The story wraps up quite quite nicely and neatly in the main game, but but it was yeah, it was absolutely fine to have it. To sort of see a little bit of sort of what happens next. Where is two set in relation to one? Is it future or past? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> Once I sort of had the amazing reveal at the end of the first game, I was like, oh my god, I, I you know, for, for one, I can't believe that I didn't accidentally find find out all this stuff in relation to obviously playing through two. But I was like, oh, I want to know how two connects to one now. But then I realized I haven't played Xenoblade Chronicles 10 in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) Xenoblade Chronicles X. And and, uh, I didn't want to then find some spoilers for that. So I thought, oh, you know what? I'm just going to have to wait until they port it over to the Switch, play that, and then I can figure out how it all fits together. They have to do it. I mean, I'm sure sure that it will. I'm absolutely sure that it will because, like, the world is incredibly well considered. Mm. And I can certainly see... From from the little I know about Xenoblade Chronicles X, I can see how it fits in with Xenoblade Chronicles. But yeah, what one of the best things about the, the future connected storyline, and it took me by surprise because there's a new, quite ridiculous knock-on related mechanic, which I enjoyed <laughs> so much more than I thought I would. So in in this campaign, you have to track down. 12 little Nopon prospectors that have become lost and scattered across this little section of the Bionis. And you'll find one and you'll then need to complete like a side quest or two before then they'll come and join you. And I'll be honest, at this point, when I realised that this was a mechanic for this, I, I did debate whether or not I would continue with the extra game or not. <laughs> Torpedo by the Nopon. Yeah. <laughs> but I am I'm really glad I stuck with it because it was actually really, really fun. Like for a start, every single one you collect they start then following you around on the overworld, like a little trail of ducklings. Oh. And uh, <laughs> so you just got these 12 little little balls just rolling around after you. It's great. And they also give you a whole new like chain attack style ability in battles because like your party is quite reduced from what it is in the main game because there's only like a handful of you in, in this little adventure. You don't have like chain attacks as you did and instead the pond specters as they're called that you've gathered uh, they like band together to release one of three special attacks that can either do like out and out damage or protect your party or deal some sort of like debuffs to sort of shift the shift the battle a bit and the more pond specters you found the more powerful and effective these moves are and it's so incredibly satisfying when you've got all 12 of the little things and then you get all the timing button presses adding up to do like extra damage and you just clear like a whole mob of enemies in one go and it's really satisfying and surprisingly fun it shouldn't have been it should have been annoying but it but it didn't good but um yeah i, I managed to sort of complete all the side quests certainly in the extra game as i I was doing the main game and I did must have been 95% of the side quests in 
in the main game uh, before finishing it. So I'm quite happy to to pop that one down for now. And uh, yeah, like I said, moving on, move on to the Pokemon Sword DLC, which I got queued up. And then the other thing I did, as promised, I did return to Summer in Mara. Good, bad, indifferent? Well, I'm afraid it's not great news. Oh. Uh, even though the game does look and sound really nice, those user interface nickels I mentioned last week really started to get me down. And also, like, once I did fudge my way through that like really quite clunky system, there's, there's just not much of a game there. Like, it doesn't do the life sim anywhere near as well as Animal Crossing. It doesn't do the oceanic island exploration anywhere near as good as Wind Waker. It doesn't do the cultivation and crafting side of things anywhere near as good as Harvest Moon. And it's just a real shame because I know the game got really well funded on Kickstarter and they, to be honest, they seem to have just misspent their funds on what will make the game look and sound nice. Mm. I mean, there's like fully animated like cutscenes. There's beautifully orchestrated music and such, but I mean, they should have spent more time and money on quality control or like playtesting, you know, actually focusing on crafting a fun and satisfying gameplay balance, but, but they haven't. It's just a shame. I mean, obviously nobody sets out to make a bad game, but I think they did kind of when when they started putting their like stretch goals out and stuff like that. They were like, right, another ten thousand, and we'll have fully hand drawn animated cutscenes. And it's like, okay, well, I'd rather that had been another ten thousand pounds, and it will be better. <laughs> That's the tricky thing to balance, isn't it? More stuff for more money, but in the same release window. Mm. Yeah, stretch goals more like stretch thin that is exactly what it is that is exactly what it is yeah unfortunately i can't really recommend it right now but i do hope that they they continue to sort of develop it and any extra income they've they've made from selling the game will go towards uh yeah improving its performance well yeah Yeah. there we go i will never ever play it (laughs) yeah yeah chris what have you been playing this week i've spent a week moving house oh yeah so this week i've played some of my very favorite games which include remembering which box i put the switch dock in (laughs) and uh, another really good one re-alphabetizing hundreds of playstation 4 games that was a laugh but in, in terms of actual games now that i'm kind of more settled i've been here the last five six days now I've done little bits and bobs in Animal Crossing, as as we do, mostly because I was really excited to see the the announcement that we're going to be able to swim and dive again in, in a week or two. Yeah, that'll be nice. And then I also, one evening, sat down and played the first hour or so of the first Last of Us, oh, because yeah. I felt swept up by the zeitgeist, Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. thought, you know, seven years after the first game came out, that's probably a good time to jump into the franchise. Yeah. <laughs> the PS4 version of The Last of Us was like remastered from the PS3 game. It still looks really shiny. It, it's very impressive to me since I spend most of the time playing things like Animal Crossing so it it looks (laughs) great it's very tense Uh, it was very scary the likelihood of me finishing it is very very slim (laughs) but but, I mean like the the first uh, sort of encounter with another enemy as it were like half an hour into the game I used an entire clip of ammunition because I I just couldn't hold my nerve to shoot in a straight line yeah Yeah, I'm I'm just so shit at these games but at the very least I do feel now that when people say things like oh that that opening's pretty harrowing isn't it I can go yeah and and at least and at least be talking for a point of first-hand knowledge <laughs> so yeah uh, yeah you know I'd, I'd like to play a bit more i'll see how far i get i haven't got to any bits yet that i just have to turn off yeah. so I'm, i've done okay in the opening window but I'll, I'll try and encourage you in that because like you i i haven't played the first one yet and i've yeah. got it on ps4 yeah, yeah. and obviously like everyone's playing the second one at the moment which is meant to be fantastic and i've been thinking oh yeah no i really should I should get around to playing the first one and then I can pick up the second one. So Yeah, that was my thinking. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and make a start in the next couple of weeks and then we can uh, we can try and keep each other 
keep yeah. each other motivated to get through the fear and, and try and finish it and then and then we can battle the second one you're far more likely to to make progress than me so what i think we should do is if you start and just make little notes just say like two hours in bit, <laughs> bit of a spook <laughs> and then just let me know and then i can keep sure. the timeline just next to my tv and yeah. kind of like hit those beats as they go and then be like, right, this is 20 minutes where I need to focus. I need someone sat yeah. with me and then we'll see how we go from there. You know what? you got a deal. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll do that. Okay. <laughs> Shall we move on to the rankings? Yeah. Starting this week, we have Minty's game. Oh. Minty, can you please tell us about your 33rd favourite video game of all time? I'd love to. Thank you very much for asking. You're very welcome, Minty. I think about the Game Boy Advance a lot. I don't know what it was about it. It was like a very cosy little handheld because it didn't have a backlight, you'll remember. So most of my gaming memories of this system are me sort of huddled up in the very corner of the sofa next to the lamp. I can certainly relate to that. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't play it in the car at night. No. Well, you could if you, if you managed to time the rhythm of your play with the passing of, of streetlights. <laughs> I guess so, yes. Yeah. Not good for action games. No. Or country lanes. Mm. Action games, country lanes. West Virginia. Take me home. <laughs> <laughs> but looking back on it and looking at some of the games that came out on it, it I thought it was just like a... A slightly better Game Boy Color with a wide screen, but it seems like it had some quite powerful innards, especially when you think about my game that I'm talking about today, which was an astonishing technical achievement, really, in terms of the graphics. The graphics were just incredible. The sound was really great. The sense of scale of this game, it was, it, it could hold its own with many of the uh, many of the larger um, RPGs on home consoles. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, enormous, incredibly well put together. Yeah, the, the intricacies of the overworld, the puzzles, the backtracking, just all the stuff that was packed into this game. It was it was really remarkable. It's Golden Sun. Yeah. Oh, it's a yeah, Jonathan Dunn an... favourite, that is. It really is. It really, really is. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not surprised, actually. I haven't played this game in years. What I remember of it is you're a, you're a group of teenagers, which is always great. Love following a group of teenagers around. <laughs> Who doesn't? You're a teacher, Chris. You do it for a living. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a group of teenagers, sensitive in the ways of magic. Although in this game they're called uh, synergies mm. because they have a they have a p at the beginning like uh, polish psychic oh yep <laughs> <laughs> and you live in a sleepy little town with a it was a temple wasn't it the soul sanctum yeah and a couple of couple of weird people come to steal the elemental stars which have been sealed away after years and years and years of war necessitated the stealing away of alchemy. People in those days didn't have very good uncles, so they didn't know what to do with great power. <laughs> Instead of learning how to apply themselves a little better, they just sealed away the powerful thing that was giving them cause to make bad decisions. I assume it's capitalism. <laughs> but these two, Satyros and Menardi, I think it is. That's the one. They were like, bring us the stars so we can do nefarious things like turn on lighthouses. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yes. yeah. It's a very, very lighthouse-heavy game. Yeah. You know what it is? <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So they, they make off with the stars to light the lighthouses and bring alchemy back to the world. And it's up to you and your group of teenagers to chase after them and stop them. And on the way, you go to various villages and dungeons and all the rest of it. Find out for yourself. It's good. You'll be glad you did. Oh, hell yeah. One of the things that 
sets this apart from uh, even as i said rpgs that are on sort of home consoles which you you, you obviously expect to be uh, to be big spongy just sopping affairs uh, filled <laughs> with uh, different game mechanics huge menus big battles and all the rest of it something that this game did so well was integrating magic into the overworld and how you yeah how you went through it because most of the time magic is just like oh I'm going to cast fireball on this enemy in the battle and that's it like, oh I'll heal myself but I can also heal myself using the menu on the overworld but what golden sun did was it took magic and used it in puzzles to move through dungeons and the more magic you got the more stuff you could do you could freeze a puddle to make it into a pillar so you could jump across a ravine so you could get some treasure it was great it was a really good integration of what had been up until that point just exciting ways to kill little monsters and also something that i really liked was the gin the genie yeah very very good system yeah yeah the little elemental uh lads and lasses who <laughs> were unleashed when i guess the elemental stars were taken from soul sanctum so they were basically optional little power-ups that if you equipped them to your character they would give you uh, better stats they would give you new abilities i think they would let you change your class as well they would yeah 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 but the best thing was if you mashed a load of them together you could summon things yes that was oh to have like little little cutscenes where you you'd summon like neptune massive whale who would shoot a a laser beam uh, I don't know a rabbit or whatever you were fighting or that big that big god of the north wind who got carved out of a mountain and then sort of did a Mr. Frosty on a big glacier to create a snowstorm oh, <laughs> Mr. Stuff. Frosty he's so fun he makes treats for everyone yeah it was exactly that gosh just... that's a blast from the past mm. <laughs> pop the ice under his hat turn the handle just like that <laughs> <laughs> alienating every listener who's not from the uk (laughs) yeah well for those of you not from the uk we are talking of course about a fun child marketed shaved ice machine of course Mm. so a fantastic handheld rpg that was every bit as expansive and as thoroughly enjoyable as anything on the n64 the playstation at the time golden sun highly recommend absolutely it was the first game that i i remember seeing advertised for game boy game boy advance and just looking at the beautiful sprite work and the lovely rounded graphics it looked it looked gorgeous and when i realized it was by camelot which were the same team that had made one of my absolute favorite console rpgs which was shining the holy ark and and the other shining series games I, I really couldn't I couldn't believe it. And then the cherry on top was the fact that Matoi Sakuraba, who's the legendary composer of the Shining series and other RPGs like Baton Kaitos and even did music for the first Dark Souls game, he was doing the music for it and it was like this is actually like a essentially like a portable Shining the Holy Ark experience. I couldn't couldn't believe my luck. Couldn't believe my luck. And uh, yeah, you'll have to wait for my full thoughts on the game mm. for quite a while yet. Did you play the second and third? Golden Sun Games, Minty. I did, yes. Yeah, I don't really remember that much about the third one at all, but the first two sort of... It was basically one complete story on two games, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and I think I think it's a shame that it didn't 
you know, obviously the, the technological capacity wasn't there to have it on one cartridge because yeah, you did sacrifice you did sacrifice some things where you know like you couldn't go back to a lot of areas from the first game in the second game, mm. even though it felt like you you should be able to, or you could. Yeah, yeah. It would be. I mean, oh, I tell you what, wouldn't wouldn't a remake of those be lovely on the Switch? Oh yeah. Oh, oh my! Oh my! Mm. There we go. Golden mm. Sun. Woo, what a game! Golden what a Sun. Game. Never played it. I, I know that you played oh. it, Jonathan. I remember seeing you have it on your Game Boy Advance when we were sat in yeah. morning registration at school. Yeah. And that that's it. That's the last memory I have of it, really. You're missing out. Clearly. Absolutely fantastic. Moving on, let's see what you did not miss out on, Chris. <laughs> and please, can you tell us what your 33rd favourite video game of all time is? Of course I can. When I was a kid... The absolute highlight of any potential weekend for me was either to go swimming. That was that was great because we'd go to McDonald's first and get a breakfast and then go swimming. And yeah. that was always fun. <laughs> but better than that was being able to go to a place called Pleasure Armour with my dad and my brother. Oh, yeah. Now, obviously, Minty, this won't mean anything to you because you didn't, didn't grow up in Thanet like we did. But Pleasure Armour was a giant like soft play fun house. Incredible. Oh, you love them. We had Deep Sea Den. There we go. Everyone has one. Everyone has one in the childhood. Croydon's Deep Sea Den. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had Deep Sea Den for soft play and the Water Palace for swimming. Whereas we had Pleasure Armour and Tides. We did. We did. Tides was in Deal. That was great as well. It was, yeah. So when I was small, in, in my diminutive childhood stature, <laughs> Pleasure Armour seemed like it was infinitely large, like genuinely the biggest place in the world. Yeah, it was. And it was like, it felt like a hallowed place. And and for those like few hours on the weekend, I felt like I was invincible because, you know, I, I felt like I could survey the ball pools. I, I could go down the slides and the rotundas with, like, the conquering reverence of Pat Sharp. <laughs> <laughs> it really was a whole lot of fun. <laughs> only only breaking to drink slush puppies <laughs> and uh, suddenly or, or occasionally venture into the arcade to play. They had, like, a life-size shooting gallery where you had, like, uh, air rifles where you could shoot targets to to make voice samples play with animatronics and things in the background i could play crocodile panic which is still like my favorite version of whack-a-mole essentially (laughs) just bash the crocodiles on the head when they pop out the tunnels and it also let me play my 33rd favorite video game of all time which is the simpsons arcade Oh. oh now for anyone that's that's never seen it or never played it, the Simpsons Arcade is a side-scrolling beat-em-up. So if you think about Streets of Rage or Golden Axe or Double Dragon or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, any of those, it's basically the same thing. You just move from left to right, beat people up. That's, that's your lot. It's probably not the best in the genre, but at that age, when I was probably maybe six, seven at the most, it felt like I was playing a cartoon. And the value of that was was something that's almost impossible to put into words because at home I had my master system which obviously I loved, but the early 90s was a a time when the arcade was still so much more powerful than what you could have in your home that it it just looked like I was playing the future. The the Simpsons looked to my tiny mind then like I was was just watching, you know, the cartoon from TV. The game was developed by Konami and they, they did it alongside like essentially like as the second series of the show was on they were making this game and because of that it was I think it was rushed into development as the first season had been such a big pop culture hit and landed in such a big way like across the whole globe so because of that playing the game now and seeing it there's a lot of sort of um, character idiosyncrasies that are not there because they just hadn't been codified in the show yet. Yeah. So certain characters that kind of barely registered in the first season or two of the show were blown up to big leading lights in this. Like the the very first boss is 
if you remember one of the wrestlers that Bart and Homer see on TV before they see the advert for Truckosaurus. Yeah, that's niche. Yeah, it's very, very small. But in, in this game, he's he's a boss. Like, he's, he's a big deal. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to see things like that. Like, Smithers is, is one of the antagonists of the game and is portrayed as being just outright evil as opposed to, you know, he'd end up being just a sycophant and just really lost in, in and of, him, of himself. You've also got things like Binky the Rabbit character that Matt Groening did before The Simpsons uh, is all throughout this game as if Konami knew something we didn't about how the, the universe is matched up and, and sort of collided. You also had characters like Marvin Monroe and Otto and, and Principal Skinner and Nelson and Martin. Like Lots of them were there, but they were in places that were perhaps a little bit weird for their character. Like Marvin Monroe is at, like serving at a hot dog stand in a, in a fun fair. Oh. It's almost like they got sent the character designs and just went, well, we'll just put him there. That can be a background character or something <laughs> like that. It's like they, they had the visuals without the context of maybe the the story of the of the TV show. So as like a maybe a Simpsons purist, if if you're one of those looking back now, you might have an issue with it because it does feel in places that it's like a little bit off brand. But at the time, I was a child who I only knew the Simpsons existed because I'd seen Bart Simpson merchandise. I'd never watched an episode at that point. <laughs> so because of that, it was like I said, just a hugely exciting thing that it was like seeing this big thing that I knew existed but in this playable format that was loud and brash and in your face. And, and I just loved it in in the same way, really. Like I, I would play PC fan games of South Park that were developed using click and play. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> like I'd, I'd play those years before I'd ever watched a minute of the TV show. Yeah. So it's, it's another one of these things that obviously now as an adult, I've seen plenty of South Park. I've seen plenty of the Simpsons, but at the time I, I just had the games and that was all I knew of these things. So I, I'd pick up the catchphrases and stuff, but wouldn't necessarily know what that meant or or how it fit into the wider world the game's cabinet itself it was a four-player version of this arcade game and each of the four controllers like the joystick and two buttons would let you control a distinct family member so you could be either bart who attacked with his skateboard marge that had a hoover lisa that had a skipping rope and homer that just had his big old fists and playing solo if if i was on my own i'd always pick bart just because it was like that was the one I knew that that was the thing I knew from The Simpsons, so I wanted to be that character. But because the, this was obviously in, in an arcade, like a communal setting, a lot of the time it was stuff with people playing already, and you could jump in mid-game and just take control of one of the leftover characters. So a lot of the times, Bart and Homer were like normally the first and second choices, and then I'd, I'd always feel like if I put my twenty p and I had to pick one of the girls. It, maybe it was great representation for the time, but for a six-year-old, I just wanted to play as the characters who catchphrases I knew. That's fair enough. So it was always a bit of a disappointment that it's like, oh, I really want to play it, but do I have to have the skipping rope? It's like, it just didn't seem quite as fun. Skipping rope, actually, I reckon it's probably a decent... If you're going to be in a brawl yeah. and you had a choice between a skipping rope, a skateboard, a hoover... And your, and your mitts. <laughs> Skipping rope would be well up there. Yeah. It's quite versatile, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit Castlevania. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, painfully though, sometimes I'd never get to play as any of the characters, like A or B tier, because the, the game had one coin slot and then you had a start button above each controller. Mm. And it meant that sometimes if there were less scrupulous teens playing, that I'd put in my 20p and they'd just hammer start and steal my money before I even got to play. Absolute balance. Yeah. And, and it was one of these things, like I, I have like, it's a deeply upsetting memory of the times when mm-hmm. I was a kid where it was like, I've got my pound. Dad's given me a pound of 20 piece to go into the arcade and play something. I, I, I'm going to play The Simpsons and then I, I lose most of that money because other people are just quicker than me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I'm sure dad had a go at them once. 
<laughs> like when, yeah. when someone went off and was like, Dad, they've taken my 20p. <laughs> they, I'm sure he came back and, and had a whinge. But anyway, that's that's neither here nor there. As I got a bit older, my family would go to Pleasure Armour less and less because I was growing up, my brother was growing up. And eventually, I'm sure Jonathan will remember, the entire building was razed to the yeah. ground in, in a duplicitous insurance scam, <laughs> as, yeah. as with lots of uh, amusements around our way. Yeah. I assume at the time that took the arcade machines with it, but who knows, really. <laughs> and I wouldn't really play the game properly again until it got a surprise port to the, the 360 and the PS3, like nearly 20 years later. <laughs> Playing it then, a lot of my enjoyment obviously came from this idea of it being a very nostalgic thing that I hadn't seen for a long time that I had these great childhood memories of. But I still, I played through the game on both platforms, like the 360 and the PS3, and got <laughs> all of the achievements and all of the trophies on both versions. And I really loved doing it. Like I've, I've said before, there was a period where I was playing pretty much exclusively for trophies and achievements, but this was more than that. It was like something I wanted to do. It was something that's just, it's a very, very fun beat-em-up. And it is a licensed game. Like obviously it's a licensed game. And, and we've talked before about how often these are really, really like woefully below par. Mm-hmm. But I, I genuinely believe it's a really brilliant beat-em-up. Like Konami were at the top of their game in the 90s. They've kind of fallen off in, in modern times. But back then they were producing a lot of really good stuff. And the game sort of felt heavy in its combat and satisfying. It was visually arresting, especially when I was a kid. It sounded authentic because it had TV sound bites and a, a really good score that kind of riffed on, on Danny Elfman's stuff from the show. And most importantly for an arcade game, especially when you're young, it was difficult, but it didn't feel totally unfair. <laughs> Not unfair. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's like arcade games by their very nature are meant to make you spend money. Yeah. But this was a game that, you know, enemies went down in just a couple hits. So it never felt like you were having to just grind your way through sections. The bosses usually had some sort of pattern you could figure out how to get through. So especially like when I was playing it on the, on the 360 and the PS3 and the modern consoles, I could beat both games in a handful of lives as opposed to 50 quid's worth of credits. <laughs> so th- they are games you can learn and get better at. It's a better tie in Simpsons game than pretty much anything bar maybe hit and run. Mm-hmm. And in preparation for this podcast, I played through the full game yesterday just via emulation oh, nice. to show Georgia what it was that I really loved about it to try and get like my head around what I wanted to say. Yeah. And of course, I can't say it was as vital or, or as affecting as it was to, to me as a six-year-old. But then again, like save installing a coin slot in the front of my TV and letting other people steal my money. It, it was never going to be. <laughs> like, yeah. it's, it's so indelibly linked to like the memories of that and the memories of just Pleasure Armour as a place and, and those sort of family weekends that, that everyone loved when they were growing up. You didn't dress Georgia up as a rudimentary <laughs> playground bully. <laughs> yeah, it's like, can you go and just pull my controller out and make, make me feel yeah. temporarily hamstrung? <laughs> yeah, can you just make me pay your half of the rent this month? <laughs> <laughs> but what what it was though even without those things is just a marvellous time capsule mm. and, and it transported me instantly back to kind of the dim but noisy arcades of, of Pleasure Armour in Ramsgate and all those little things like the beautiful sprites and the, and the catchy music and, and the approachable kind of beat-em-up gameplay it's, it's just really fun and I mean if nothing else to sell you on the game the last boss is Mr Burns in a mech suit for Christ's sake like what, absolutely what, what's amazing not to love? what's not how to love how has that not been in all of the Simpsons infinite <laughs> episodes how has that never happened like, I know. Right, Dan, I'm, only, yeah, I'm only on season 21 at the moment so. <laughs> yeah it's, it's a great game and I'm sure it's not on anyone else's list but it's, it's one of my all time favourite arcade games because of the time I played it and this sort of enduring memory I've had of it just my whole life really oh that's fantastic it's, it's funny because I I for some reason, I don't know why, I wasn't really sort of allowed to to play in like arcades yeah. uh, when I was a kid. I don't know why. Like if my parents thought that video games were inappropriate or 
Yeah, just the environment was a bit unsavoury. Um, yeah. So I, I, I have no memory of that side of Pleasure Armour at all. The Simpsons in general, like, had... Well, generally, have had some pretty decent games. Yeah. That, what was the one... Was it, like, the Alien alien Invasion one? Bart versus the Space Mutants. Is that the one? Yeah. I think so. I rem- and I remember playing that on my friend Tim's PC yeah. when we were kids. And likewise, like, with you, it's just amazing to see... You know, as far as I was concerned, totally like TV style uh, or TV quality animation and mm. graphics being played. And um, yeah, I've, I've just been watching a little video of playthrough of the Simpsons arcade game here where you've been talking about it. Yeah. And yeah, it looks it looks fantastic. It looks like it plays and handles like Streets of Rage. Yeah. Like you said, it's got some some weird sort of uh, character <laughs> things. Like when you beat up a Krusty the Clown enemy, his wig falls off and it turns out he's just some normal bloke, which... Yeah possibly alludes to the fact that originally he was designed to be Homer's alter ego and he was meant to be Homer in disguise. Yeah, yeah, I do do remember reading that, actually. Mm. And it's something that I've really appreciated, actually, watching through all of The Simpsons in the last few weeks since Disney Plus came out. And you realise, actually, like, how established some of the characters are and some of the traits are. And... Like you were saying, like Marvin Monroe had appeared maybe in like half an episode, yeah. and they were like, well, he, he can be in a donut stand, or like the fact that like Jacques, the uh, the, the bowling guy, the bowling yeah. guy who tries to um, have an affair with Marge, he's in the opening credits for <laughs> twenty years, and he's he he appears in like one episode. It's yeah. nuts. It's a it's a great episode. I really really like that one. That is it's one of the very best. That. There we go. So lastly, but not leastly, we have my game. And my game this week is one of the more recent games that I played prior to putting the list together. And it was one of the games that I played on the PS4 when I first got the console. And I got it because it was PS4 Pro enhanced. So it would look super sharp on my 4K telly. Like the first swathe of games I bought for the PS4, all ones that were optimised for 4K or 60 frames per second. And I think... Oh, well, I mean, this this was definitely my favourite of the lot. And even, even though the others I got were good, I think I got... Well, I got Fallout 4, which I mentioned before, I was a bit underwhelmed by. I got the Wipeout Amiga collection, which was fun, but nothing really to write home about outside of playing it, obviously, in VR, which I hadn't done at that point. I got... Was it um, Horizon? Yeah. Which, again, I was quite underwhelmed by because it was basically doing like all the same things that Breath of the Wild did, but not as sharply or satisfyingly. <laughs> yeah. And as a technical showcase for the system, this game that I'm talking about this week really, really delivered. But as I've said many times before, that wouldn't matter if the game wasn't fun to play. And this really was. It is a sequel to a reboot of a classic gaming series, one that's already featured on my list. It's Rise of the Tomb Raider. Oh, that's the second one, isn't it? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Mm. Now, obviously, I don't have the personal connection to this specific game that I've had with many other games because I didn't play it as a child and obviously I certainly didn't connect with it in the same way that like Tomb Raider Anniversary did, which I spoke about a few weeks ago. So my my praise of this game isn't tainted by nostalgia or rose-tinted memories. It's it's just an out-and-out incredible game. After the Tomb Raider series sort of run aground a bit several times with, I think it was the Angel of Darkness, which was like the fifth or sixth game, the series then changed hands from being developed by Core Design to Crystal Dynamics, who then took a bit of time reinventing the games and then released Tomb Raider Legend, which was 
okay. They used that same engine for Tomb Raider Anniversary, which I've spoken about, and then they did a game called Underworld, which was a bit... Uh, it's Yeah, it was fine. <laughs> but then they took five years out to really rethink what they were doing with the series. They were on the cusp of, of jumping up another hardware generation as well, so they had scope to really consider what they wanted to do with it. And like with everything at the time, they went the Christopher Nolan-esque gritty reboot origin story route with uh, with a game simply titled Tomb Raider. And this game was, it was a lot more cinematic than what had come before. This game it really reveled in throwing Lara Croft through an endless cavalcade of arsehole to form the character <laughs> we, we know so well. And this became entirely ludicrous. I mean, there's only so many burning buildings you can run across in an earthquake, you know, so many waterfalls you can go over in the company of several crocodiles, so many planes you can crash, so many explosions that can throw you through a window, so many people, so many, many people shooting at you. Like, your suspension of disbelief can only go so far, but it, it, it was it was a really, really fun ride, and, and there was a great moment right at the climax of the game's final fight where you end up finding and picking up a second pistol, and then for a second you see Lara hold that, like, iconic pose with her two pistols by her side before you take control of her again to finish the game off that's pretty cool yeah it was it was, it was really cool it was a nice yeah. touch it was a really good game it was good fun it played well there were some great action mechanics great exploration mechanics yeah it was a great game but as with a lot of reboots or entire new series this game was was kind of testing the waters to see what gamers wanted from the series going into the next generation and with a big universal thumbs up all round for this game, it gave the development team license to, to build on that and, and develop it even further in, in what followed, which was Rise of the Tomb Raider, which came a couple of years later. And they really delivered on stepping so many elements up to another level. So for a start, it's it's a lot more open world than its predecessor, and, and by far the most open world a, a Tomb Raider game had ever been at that point. And at first... You know, my initial thoughts were that it was a bit of a shame because it would forego the, the, the sort of finely crafted locations that the individual levels are based around in classic Tomb Raider games. But Rise of the Tomb Raider had such a beautiful, sprawling world with enormous, like almost romantic environments with, with ruins bathed in glorious sunlight and snowy mountain peaks and deepest, darkest caves with the most beautiful ambient lighting I, I, I've ever seen in a game. Oh, stop it, you're making me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and whilst the story is, is a fairly typical Tomb Raider affair, you know, hunting down some legendary MacGuffin that is being sought by a convenient dastard bent on using its biblical power for evil, the game makes up for it with, with really excellent character work. Taking the character development beats that it started in the reboot Tomb Raider, it developed Lara even further. And and the, the refreshing thing is that it, it doesn't just paint her as this, this paragon angel in the, in the midst of all this evil. Like her own cracks begin to show in her moral compass and you see her making decisions that really are quite questionable and, and challenge your own relationship with the character. It's really excellent. And character i absolutely love though she sort of had a, a sort of a, a sidekick body man character called jonah this big like hulking polynesian chap who sort of acts as both her conscience and her bodyguard I mean, he was yeah it was really good really good writing and one of the key things that separated the reboot from the previous games was was partly what the generational difference the platform gave the series which was just a much better engine to handle action and also a whole host of examples of third-person action done well to draw inspiration from. And we'd seen in games like hand-to-hand -hand combat in like Assassin's Creed and Prince of Persia, 
and gun-based action set pieces in games like Gears of War. And it meant that the Tomb Raider games became inevitably a bit more action-orientated than puzzle-orientated. Fortunately, the action set pieces are great. Like, they flow really well, and in Rise of the Tomb Raider, it also allows you to implement your survival crafting skills into the into the fray. Like, you'd find, like, an empty drinks can from around a campfire, and you'd quickly fashion it into a bomb and chuck it into a group of enemies. Now, don't get me wrong, it's ridiculous. It's totally ridiculous, but it is really, really fun. And it means that there's like a, a classic Tomb Raider puzzly survival edge to the battles as well. Like if you choose to operate more stealthily throughout the game, which which you can do because you've got access to all these amazing abilities and mechanics that you end up unlocking for Lara throughout the game. You can approach each enemy encounter like its own puzzle, trying to figure out how you can like climb up a tree to get onto a branch that's hanging over where someone is standing guard so you can perform a drop attack on them or sort of carefully watching their movement path so you can so you can hide in like a convenient shrubbery and, and take them out and hide their body before then moving on to take out the next villain. But one of the things that Rise of the Tomb Raider does to make up for the lack of puzzle elements in the main campaign is having a huge wealth of side quests in the form of these areas called just challenge tombs and th- these were essentially mini scenarios hidden all over the world they would usually have some sort of treasure or a piece of equipment hidden in the middle of it and you had to use all of the classic puzzle solving techniques to to fashion a way to to get to the prize in the middle so there was like you know you would be building bridges or flooding areas using buoyancy and physics to weigh stuff down or make it float and pulling levers pushing blocks like classic classic stuff and, and it's almost reminiscent of how breath of the wild made up for the lack of in air quotes real dungeons by having all of the shrines dotted around the map to act as like mini dungeons which satisfied the craving for that sort of gameplay and it, it, it was much that much like that here and in addition to that there's also like loads of hidden collectibles strewn around the world as well that are like drenched in genuine historic lore and i mean you'll easily double the playtime of the main campaign hunting down all of the relics and the documents and the murals and solving all these challenge teams you know if, if that is what you're after from the game and, and because of how they've refined the movement mechanics from the previous Tomb Raider game, it, it's it's just an absolute breeze to explore the world. Like you'll be swinging and running and climbing around the areas like so fluidly that it's it's never not fun to try and explore every crevice on your map. It never feels like a chore. I mentioned at the top of this bit that the game looks incredible, and it really does. It continues to blow my mind, even even watching it now, and it's five years old. Like amazing animation, environmental effects, lighting. I think. I think, like, graphically speaking, it's the best game I've ever played. Ooh. And even though, like, the tech demos that are coming out at the moment of what, like, the Unreal 5 engine can do for next-generation consoles looks amazing, to me, it, it it's only looks like a small step up from this game. And, uh, yeah, it really looks fantastic. But one of the best things about this game, similar to what I said about Resident Evil 4 a couple of weeks ago, this game knows it's a game for, for all of the great writing, earnest voice acting and realistic environments that the set pieces are still pretty absurd and, and stretch your belief to its finest hair. But there's also additional modes like time attack and score challenges. There's loads of in-game video gamey challenges and achievements like in this remote village in the middle of Peru or something. And, and you, you find a series of 12 targets to shoot down around the village, you know, uh, or collecting like a series of ribbons that are hanging from the branches of trees in, in, in a forest or finding the four highest points to successfully swan dive off around the world. <laughs> like, it's, it's classic classic video game stuff, and it keeps you 
grounded in the best possible sense. It doesn't keep you grounded in, in thinking, oh, this is such a believable experience. It keeps you grounded in the fact that this is a video game and it's meant to be fun, which I think is equally as commendable as creating like an amazing immersive experience that is just pure escapism. And this game, I think, it, it actually offers you like healthy amounts of, of, of both that really combine then to make it, it just a phenomenal experience. You know, you can lose yourself in this world and get totally wrapped up in this adventure whilst also then having these moments of just out and out fun and addictive arcade gameplay nature. It's, it's just, it's it's brilliant. It's really, really brilliant. Now, I, I did buy and play through Shadow of the Tomb Raider, which was the sequel then to this game that came out a couple of years ago. And I think I spoke about it then, actually, very uh, early You on. did in episode one. Was it episode one? It was, yeah. Well, there we go. And, like, yeah, it was a good game, but there was too much green and brown going on for my colour-blind brain to make quick and full sense of. And so I found the game just a bit messy and frustrating, which, which isn't fair on the game itself, which was fantastic. It's just the wrong fit for my poor disabled eyes. But there we go. And, yeah, I mean, I really look forward to seeing where this series develops as it steps up to a new generation of hardware. And I'll happily keep hold of my copy of Rise of the Tomb Raider to tide me over until then. Keep replaying it with exuberant glee because, <laughs> yeah, it really is. It's fantastic. Fantastic game. I think what you were saying about like visual fidelity of these sort of games, like mm. I, I'm noticing this as well. Like, like I said at the beginning of this episode, playing The Last of Us, this is a, quite an old game now. I know it's like a remastered version, but I've just never put that much time into kind of seeking out the, these experiences that, that look great. So it was like a real shock to play that. But at the same time, it's like we're never going to have the same jump that we did going from 32-bit, like the PS1, to to the PS2. Yeah. And I think everything onwards from that, like when, when I first got my Xbox 360, I, w- I was thinking like, yeah, it looks, looks all right. It's kind of just like a slightly shinier PS2. And then when I started playing on the PS4, it was like, yeah, it's all right. It's like a slightly shinier 360. And, and we're going to kind of go up through that because we've got these kind of just diminishing returns now. Yeah. And and like you say about next gen, like when when I watched the PlayStation Five reveal stuff recently, I had that same feeling that you did. That it's like this doesn't look that much better than some games I've played in you know quite recently, and and I think it's the back end stuff maybe that that has to kind of step up in terms of the actual processing power more than what it's visually going to look like because we're kind of capping out at the moment. And yeah, if Tomb Raider is a real showcase, then maybe that gives us a bit of taste of what's actually coming next in terms of visuals. Yeah, I think so think so so there we have it another three games first of all we had golden sun texture like brown (laughs) (laughs) and then we had the simpsons arcade before finally rise of the tomb raider now if you've enjoyed this episode or if indeed you've enjoyed any of our episodes please do share the podcast please do tweet about it pop it on social media we'd we'd absolutely love that it means a lot to us when we see people sharing it you can also reach out to us you can find us on facebook facebook.com forward slash hour three cents feel free to chat to us on there about any games that you're playing take us to task on any of these games you can reach out to us individually as well you can find me on twitter at jonathan dunn you can find me at chaz underscore hodges and i'm clement underscore boo and please do check out our youtube channel and subscribe to that because we've got loads of great video content on there and more coming all the time and if you're really enjoying what we're doing then please do head over to patreon.com forward slash our three cents and we'd very much appreciate it if you threw a few pennies our way And until next time, we shall say goodbye. Goodbye. Hey folks, it's Asif Khan, CEO and Editor-in-Chief over at ShackNews.com. 
give a listen to our 9 to 5 Elon podcast about Tesla and electric vehicles and all sorts of cool stuff over there on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Video Death Loop is a podcast where we watch a short video clip on loop until we just can't take it anymore. Along the way, we'll try our best to make each other laugh and to hold out longer than the other guy. You can jump in on any episode, no need to worry about continuity. Check out Video Death Loop on the Greenlit Podcast Network with new episodes every Friday.